Uh, good morning again. Uh, how many of you would say, like, I just, I just get too many, I get too many emails every day and every week, like, just too much. I, like, tilt on that one, right? Yeah, a few of you, yeah, most of you. Yeah, so I, I feel like that too. I get too many emails, and I don't always know, I can't always process them in a timely way. And so uh, what I do is, uh, I've, you can use this if you want, okay, this is a way to deal with it. If I don't recognize who it's from, or I don't, like, find interest in the subject matter, I drop it into the junk mailbox. Brilliant, right? That's what it's there for. I know right now some of you are saying, so that's what happened to the email I sent you. <laughs> no, I'm sure you're getting a re- response. So here, well, here's why I say that. A couple of weeks ago, probably months, several months ago now, I got an email where uh, I, I didn't recognize who it was from. It was from a Mr. David T. Adams. And I don't know any David Adams in my uh, network of people. Uh, and so I was about to put it into the junk mailbox, and then I realized, uh, oh, that's an interesting subject. Uh, the subject was your inheritance. I thought, well, I'm interested in my inheritance. That's a subject I'm really interested in. So I read it, and I, it's kind of sitting there. I haven't responded back to him yet, and I, uh, I probably will. But uh, here's a little bit of the backdrop to it. Uh, Mr. Adams, according to his letter to me, his email is a lawyer uh, with the legal firm Thompson & Associates, and he works out of an office in Lisbon, Portugal. (laughs) And he was just wanting me to know that he was reaching out to me because uh, recently he had a wealthy client that had passed away. And uh, there was no executor and will in place, and the authorities had tapped him to kind of take care of this matter for them. And it was a rather large estate, And his challenge was to find family members kind of around the world that might share in this estate. It's quite a large estate, as I said, it's 9.8 million U.S. dollars, which I'm interested in that right there. (laughs) And uh, in all of his search, and it had been a global search apparently, he lets me know I am the only viable living relative (laughs) that he has been able to find. And although it's, uh, it appears it's rather a distant relationship, nonetheless, there is enough connection there that I am likely entitled to 50% of the $9.8 million. That's not chump change. Like, I'm interested in that. He gets the other 50% kind of for finding the right family member. Fortunately, these funds are already in an escrow account that he controls. So he tells me, all you need to do is send me a little bit of personal information about yourself so I can verify, in fact, that you are that distant relative. And upon receiving that information and a check for $5,000, not a bad return for like 9.8, right? And fortunately, he says, oh, by the way, if you don't want to send a check, you can just put it on your credit card. Just send me your credit card information, and I'll be glad to take care of this for you. And if I get the money to him, he will have the funds wired to my bank account within the next 30 days or so. Not bad, right? Well, this, as you can guess, comes as a total surprise to me because I'm actually not aware of any family members that live in Portugal or the entire European Union, for that matter. But you see, I don't want to pass up on what could be an incredible opportunity for my family and myself. But I ha- like I said, I haven't responded to him yet, and I thought maybe you could help me with this this morning. So there's really three options that I see here. One would be just do it. Just go for it. I mean, 5K, no problem. Big return on that. Sounds like very little risk. Can't miss opportunity. 
That's one option. Another option would be, oh boy, you better be careful here. Just like, hold on just a sec. Uh, check it out before you lean in too far. It could be a scam, could end up being a big loser in the whole thing. Like, you have to be careful. So better check it out um, because you don't want to get fooled if it's not the real thing. Third option is just stop, like, back up the bus, back away from the edge, delete the email as quickly as you can. It obviously is a hoax and a scam. So maybe you can help me with this decision. Anybody here suggests, like, just do it. Like, there's always somebody in the crowd, right? Somebody who doesn't like me. Yeah. That's, how many of you would say, okay, just be careful. Like, proceed, but just be careful. Like, watch your steps. Don't be too eager on this one. How many of you would say, stop? Like, just stop. Yeah, you've gotten that email as well, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it turns out, that's right, it turns out it's a larger family than we thought. <laughs> so the reason I say this is not because it's not a real thing. I mean, it is. I mean, the deal's not real, but the email is real. But I say it because it's Easter. And when word started to leak out Sunday morning, Sunday evening, but more so in the days that followed, that Jesus had come back to life and was wandering around someplace in Jerusalem, everyone, every single person, responded as if it was a scam and a hoax. And everyone would have said, just back away from there, just stop. Couldn't possibly be real. Everyone. That is the general public, the authorities who actually were afraid that someone would make up a story that he had come back to life. And then the hoax would be maybe a real thing. Even his 11 remaining followers and closest friends, none of them, none of them landed initially on the idea of a resurrection. And when the idea was floated, none of them bought it. None of them believed it. And, you know, why wouldn't they be sure that it was a hoax and a scam? They expected, and in reality, you and I would have as well. We just expect that deceased people do what deceased people do. They stay deceased. That's what they do. That's, that's logic. That's normal. In the entire historical record of the time, we do not find a single news outlet in official state authority a single historian or not one single eyewitness to all the events saying that there was anybody waiting outside the tomb counting down the seconds until he emerged on that Sunday morning. Not a single person. Even though he had said himself that it would happen, no one actually thought it would happen. In fact, if you look at the historical record of those that were there on the ground that weekend, this is what you read starting already Saturday night. This is what it reads. It's a Saturday evening when the Sabbath ended. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, a group of women close to the scene, went out and purchased burial spices so that they could anoint or embalm, if you want to use that word, embalm Jesus' body. Now, the reason they had to go out and purchase the supplies is that the events of Friday happened so quickly and unexpectedly that they simply didn't have the time nor actually had considered this outcome where they would actually need those supplies. They hadn't thought of that. Who would have expected it? The previous Sunday, the whole city had come out to welcome Jesus. Thursday night, he has a party in an upper room with some of his closest friends. Later that night, he's arrested in the garden. By morning, he's been charged and convicted. By noon, he's on the cross. By 3 o'clock, he's dead. By 6 o'clock, his body's in the grave. There was just so much that happened over such a short period of time. It was a head-spinning series of events how could they possibly have planned for this? 
because they never expected it to happen. The events were shocking and unexpected, not just in terms of speed, but this is not how this was going to end. Jesus was to them a miracle worker, at the very least. But he was a powerful prophet from, the God, most, from God, most likely, and they were increasingly thinking that he might just be the Messiah they had been promised and waiting for. They could not keep up with what was unfolding emotionally, never mind suspecting how or even that Jesus' life would end. In fact, had you told them that this is how it would, oh, wait, someone had, they still didn't believe it would happen when it happened. But still, in stunned shock and growing grief, they had watched Joseph and Nicodemus take Jesus' body, his lifeless body, down from the cross, wrap it in a linen garment, struggle to haul it down from a cliff, take it over to a tomb that had been carved out of a rock cliff. And there in numb silence, they had watched as these two guys had fought to roll this giant stone across the entrance where Jesus' body lay. So that night and all of the next day, they huddled together with friends, trying to encourage and console one another and somehow make sense of what had happened and, more importantly, why it had happened. As the sun set, marking the end of the Sabbath prohibition on work, these ladies went to the local store where you buy embalming supplies, spice and cloth and so on, ready for the sunrise the next morning so they could hasten to the tomb and they could properly take care of Jesus' body and more likely sit with his body and think about who he was to them and say their farewell and to think about what he meant to them. And so we read this from the historical record. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they, that's the group of ladies, they went to the tomb. On the way, they were asking each other, won't it be cool to see him alive? No, they didn't. They said, who's going to roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? You see, they possibly had seen the struggle it was for the men to move the heavy stone so emotionally numb, however, they hadn't even thought about how they were going to do it. And here they were, a couple of women wanting to get into the tomb, carrying about 70 pounds of cloth and spice, and they had totally thought, uh, not thought about how they were going to get in. The record goes on, it says, but as they arrived, they looked up and they saw the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. And Luke, who is one of the writers of the accounts of this, is someone who investigated this thoroughly and systematically, looked into the stories of the eyewitnesses. And they were, had been told years before that this is what would happen. And then when it does happen, we were told by Luke that they go into the tomb and they simply find it empty. Here's the thing. What I want you to know, especially if you used to be a church person, or maybe someone who once thought of yourself as a Jesus follower, but you wouldn't think of yourself that way today. Perhaps this is the only time of year that you would go to church because you want to honor your spouse or parent or family member or grandparent, or maybe you said yes to a friend to honor their request because they're religious and you respect them as a person and you're here because of that. Can I honor you for doing that today? It really does honor them. Even if you don't share their faith, for you to be here with them is an affirmation of who they are, and I honor you for doing that. But perhaps, just perhaps, there's something that you were never told about the Easter story. 
You see, we tend to think of Easter as a story for people who are completely convinced and faith-filled and who celebrate a sure thing. But that is not how it was when it happened. And Easter may, in fact, be just as good a day for those who doubt are skeptical and even cynical that it really happened. It could just be that kind of day. Maybe you were never told that when Jesus' closest friends looked into the tomb, not a single one of them assumed a resurrection, not one. And in the early days, as that started to be the story, they were doubters, they were skeptics, and some were cynics. Remember Thomas? When Mary and the other women looked into the tomb, they assumed exactly what we would assume, and their logic led them to think not that Jesus was alive, but that someone had stolen his body. And it's a reasonable thing to think. The historical record says that they ran back to where they had been hiding the last few nights, and they told Jesus' other disciples what they had seen, and frankly, they didn't believe what they had to say. You can read from John's writings of what he says. He says, uh, they came back to these where they had been staying, and they said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. We don't know. We just don't know what has happened, but we know this. Somebody logically went into that tomb sometime overnight, and we don't know what they, what their motives were. We don't know why they did it, but we just know that Jesus' body is missing, and someone took him overnight. Now, I want to stop there for just a second, and I want you to think about one other thing with me. Oftentimes, when we come to the scriptures, we think of them as a holy text, and it is that. It really is. But we don't think of it as a historical document. But you know, before it was a holy text, it was a historical document. You know, we often don't think of it. This, we sometimes think of it as this way. There were a group of men or group of people at some point who were, you know, scholars and they were followers of God and lovers of Jesus. And they got together sometime after the fact and they wrote some letters and they wrote some books and they scribbled down some things that would support what it had to say. You see, Jesus had to come back to life for it all to kind of come together, right? And so rather than it being a real event, sometime down the road from it, a group of people got together as the giant scheme or hoax, and wrote this stuff out, put it into a book called the New Testament, and that's what we've been given. That's not how it worked out. That's not really what happened. Do you know that there was no New Testament for several hundred years? These hadn't been bound into anything, these stories. What they were is these accounts were probably written sometime 15 or 20 years, no more than 30 years after the fact. We know it wasn't more than 30 years because most of the people who wrote, it's historically verified that they died as martyrs for the cause of Jesus. So it happened sometime before that, probably sometime in the 15 to 20 year after So what does that mean for us? Well, just think about it for a second. What's a really significant event that happened in our nation within the last 15 to 20 years that every one of us who were even six or seven years of age when it happened to today can remember exactly where you were, what was happening, what went through your mind? September the 11th, 2001, horrible attack on our country. And every one of us who spent the day watching the television, in fact, some of us were there. We have a family in our church that lost a family member in that. You can record what happened. You write it down. And some of us are going to write it down so our children and grandchildren never forget what happened. That's what's going on here. These men are at, toward the end of their life. Their lives are threatened. 
And I just wonder if somebody didn't come along to them and say, we can't lose your story. So you're going to go, but we need your story. So write down what happened. Write down what you actually experienced, what you actually saw. Now, they wrote them in different parts of the world at slightly different times, and guess what? They kind of corroborate each, one, each other. It's really an amazing account. It would be take almost 100 years before these stories written down would actually be shared among the churches and the Jesus followers across the world. It wasn't an immediate thing. It would be 300 years before someone took them and bound them together in a book. So the danger is that we think of this event not as an event, but somebody wrote about it way after to make it be what it should be. That's just not what happened historically. These are living accounts of real people who really experienced something. And for them, it started in part when these gals came back to them and said, somebody has taken the body. And you know what their response was? Luke tells us this, but the story sounded like nonsense to them. That's where they started. They didn't believe it. So here's something that you have in common with Jesus' friends. If you're someone who would acknowledge that Jesus is a historical person, and by the way, most historic historians accept that today. There was an era when some scholars set out to disprove Jesus' existence, but that, wasn't, that didn't last very long, a relatively short lifespan to it, and now it's generally accepted that Jesus was a historical figure in the first century. Lots of debate, maybe, about who he was and what he was about, but not much debate that he was a real person. And maybe even possibly you admire some of the good things that he taught, and you think that he was a good person, and he's worth emulating at least some of his life. But when it comes to the resurrection, it just feels like nonsense to you. It just seems ridiculous that an intelligent person would actually subscribe or buy into that kind of thing. Well, I want you to know you're in very good company. Jesus' best friends and traveling companions felt the same way the morning and the days after that they discovered his body was missing. They assumed what everyone assumes about dead people. They stayed dead. That's what they assumed. But somehow these women were incredibly convincing or insistent, whatever it was. And Peter, who's in that group who doesn't believe, gets up and he runs out. This is what the historical record again tells us about Peter. It says, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. Stooping in, he saw the empty linen wrappings and went home again proclaiming, Jesus is alive. No, he didn't. He went home wondering, what in all the world happened? He doesn't go away shouting Jesus is alive. There's been a miracle and Jesus has come back to life, just like he said. No. The scene appears to be closer to a slowly moving, confused, shocked, almost staggering, walking home, trying to figure out what has happened to Jesus. There is no evidence that the resurrection was an option that he was considering. A bit of a personal aside, if I may. In my early 20s, when the dominant question of my mind was trying to answer, like, the truth question, like, what is really true, or what's true about me, or what's true about life, or what's true about God, that was just the question in my early 20s I was trying to figure out. What's recorded by the early followers of Jesus about their personal doubts was a key element that convinced me that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Here's why. You see, I identified myself as a Christian, but I was filled with doubt about most things about my faith. However, I was in a religious environment where doubt was seen as reason enough to question the entire framework of one's faith. 
It was often inferred that if one doubted, one was likely not really a Christian. So, rather than express doubt, I covered my doubt by expressing confidence in the very things that I doubted. I became dogmatic and judgmental of those who didn't believe what I did. I would condemn them, and it was all an attempt to save face with my Christian friends and family and prove that I believed what I seriously doubted. <laughs> and then I read the account of those that were on the ground in the action that weekend. And oddly, they did not become dogmatic, but they became vulnerable. And they took the risk of expressing and documenting their doubts and disbelief. It's like they weren't trying to be strong or have a strong image, and they weren't superstitious, and they weren't propping up a story to save face or keep a movement going because there was no movement to move. There was no story really to tell any longer. There were no doubts to be hidden. It was really over. But it would be their frankness and their transparency with their doubts. I said, that, that's what real people who have seen something in the face of opposition do. They don't fake their beliefs. They live them. They just go and live them because it's been so impactful for them. The historical record tells us for the rest of that day, they remained in hiding for fear of their own lives. And then when evening comes, this happens. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors. Of course they were. Because they were afraid. Of course they were. If their leader was gone and been taken out by people, they would probably next. And that creates fear. They were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. There they are in hiding. They're not running through the streets telling people Jesus is alive. They're hiding, and Jesus pays them a visit, and their response is the way we would respond if we saw a dead person alive. I see dead people. <laughs> Some of them scare me. Yeah, they're afraid. Afraid of what? A resurrected friend? <laughs> that might create shock. I'm not sure it would create that kind of fear. This is what they were afraid of, Luke tells us. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Their assumption is not that Jesus is alive, but a ghost has come to visit them. Jesus knows this has been a crazy and mentally and emotionally kind of blitzkrieg for them. And so out of his goodness, you see his good heart again, rather than scolding them for not believing he says, don't be afraid, guys. And then he eats some bread. I think not because he was hungry. I think because he wanted to show them, I am not a ghost. I'm eating food here. I'm chowing down on some bread because I want you to know I respect your doubt. And I'm not going to castigate you for it. I'm going to rather show you I'm alive. And he said this to them. Yes, it was written long ago the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. And you guys are so dense you don't get it. Not at all. Not what he says. Guys, I told you it would happen. I did, and I know you don't believe. But I think you will in time. And so, like, have your doubts. Let's walk through your doubts with, together. He goes on to say, it was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. And here's the message. This is forgiveness of sins for those who rethink. That's what repent means. Those who rethink. 
And then he says something to them that would be the thing that changes their view. It opens their eyes for some reason. It's the turning point of their doubt. And it reflects in their response. This is what Jesus turns to them. Guys, you are going to be my witness of all these things. It's through you, through you and what you've encountered, that the world is going to know that this is legit. It actually happened one day, one weekend in Jerusalem in the history of humanity. It's going to be you guys that are going to go around the world and talk about it from personal experience. In other words, what is so hard for you to believe and for you to comprehend is going to be the story that you tell to the world. It's going to be hard for the world to believe and comprehend as well. So rather than send you out with a theological argument to give to people, rather than send you out with a doctrinal treatise, or ask you to start academic institutions or build great cathedrals, you are simply going to tell people what you have seen and experienced. That's it. That's the whole agenda. You're going to tell them that indeed Jesus died on Friday and I saw it. And Sunday morning, I doubted, but I saw him alive. It would not be till Sunday night, maybe Monday, that I would say, yep, he's alive. And you go tell that story. It's so interesting and amazing to me. If you were to spring ahead about a month and a half, 50 days to be exact, these very same people are still huddling together and hiding. They're still afraid. They're still concerned about it. There's still some doubts in this whole thing for them. They're all together in one place and suddenly and as unexpectedly and powerfully in the same way as Jesus' resurrection would have been for them, God comes to them in a disembodied spirit and speaks with them and releases them and launches them into a global movement. That's why you and I sit in this room today. They go out into the streets of Jerusalem led by Peter and they begin to say and to do things that Jesus had done while he was with them and you know what they talk about? His resurrection. They finally have got it. They finally landed on it. They finally resolved what it is. There's a point where they heal a guy just kind of the way Jesus did. Jesus was always so helpful in healing and they come across a guy that's been disabled for 40 years his whole life. And Peter, uh, by God's power in him, you know, heals him. And then they're kind of questioned about it. Like, why did that happen and what happened? And <clears throat> Peter says this. He says, are we being questioned today because of what we've, the, because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Are you really interested in knowing how this happened? Well, let me state clearly to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the man you crucified, and here's the deal. But he was raised from the dead. That's our, that's our story. That's how it happened. Immediately, the religious leaders aren't really happy with this. They're concerned that that story will go out, and so they call Peter in and his buddies in, and they have a little tribunal, and they say, here's the deal. Stop talking about Jesus' resurrection. Just stop it. To which Peter says, we uh, actually cannot stop telling you about everything. Everything what? Everything we put together in our Christian code of conduct and morality. We've got to talk to you about that. We can't stop talking about every, everything in our super tight, perfectly spelled out statement of faith. That's what we're going to talk about. We can't stop talking about what the Bible says. Wait, there wasn't a Bible. So they couldn't talk about that. No, we can't stop talking about what we've seen and heard. Because we've seen and heard it. That's our deal. In other words, it was the resurrection that created Christianity. And as these people eventually, as these people and eventually hundreds of others, 
500 approximately, told their stories about how they had personally seen Jesus alive, it would now get traction and the world would be different and we sit here today because an event, not because the Bible says it's so. It's because an event, a historical document points out the stories of people who actually saw and experienced it. Years later, it would be the same Peter who steps into the fray that 50 days after Jesus' resurrection steps into it again. Now he's, it's 30 years later, and he's an older man. He's you know in his 60s, and he has been through so much in those 30 years. He's lost many of his friends, fellow disciples to martyrdom. He's experienced so much grief and pain and sorrow and sadness and abuse and persecution himself. 30 years later, after all that he's gone through, you would think he would finally go, let's stop with the resurrection. It hurts too much. It creates so much personal problems for me. But no, that is still what he's talking about 30 years later. He writes a couple of letters to some friends who have become followers of Jesus maybe wanting to encourage them because they're in difficulty as well. And this is what he writes to them in 1 Peter. He says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have new life. Why? Well, because. Because why? Well, because God raised Jesus from the dead. Here he is 30 years later with the same message, same personal experience, all these years later after all the hardship, opposition, in the shadow of his own crucifixion. This is still his message. He goes on to say this. Now we live with great expectation. This is the result for me personally in, in my life with the resurrection, he'll say. I live with great expectation. And we have a priceless inheritance. Remember the inheritance email I got? Not priceless. Not at all. It's something so different from a hoax and fakery and a scam. This is a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change and delay, decay. In other words, what Peter believes is that living a life of great expectation now and a life that outlives this life are what Jesus' resurrection offers. This is the inheritance he refers to here, a direct and personally engaged life with a resurrected king named Jesus. Just a few sentences further, he finishes up his, this part of the letter, and he writes this, For you know, you know, because they were followers of Jesus, and they had lived with the same story that Peter had. You know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. You know, if... If you've ever experienced receiving a, an inheritance or if you're expecting one from your parents or grandparents, whatever it might be, um, do, you, do you know what it's going to be? It's going to be perishable stuff. Now, they'll pass on legacy of wisdom and all that, and that's not perishable. But when we usually think about an inheritance, we think about stuff. And this is what Peter's writing about, just the emptiness of that inheritance and he finishes this, he says, and it will not be paid with mere gold or silver which lose their value. There's a different kind of inheritance. And this is what it is. It is the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. That is the inheritance. It is spiritual life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
When Peter talks about a spotless lamb of God, he takes us back to the very first day, I think, that Jesus walked onto the public stage beside the Jordan River. And his cousin John the Baptist, who had talked about a Messiah coming, sees Jesus coming. And when he sees him, he says, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the inheritance that Jesus' resurrection offers. You know what my hope would be this morning? My hope would be that if you've always thought of the scriptures as kind of this sacred text and some people kind of put it together to shore up a story that they wanted us all to have, that you might rethink of it. And rather than think of it in those terms, think of it as a historical document of people who told their real experience. Then look at their lives and how they lived and the difference that it made for them. And how they call that the full life, the abundant life, the rich life, the satisfying life, the whole life, the complete life. It's just amazing how they describe that life on that side of their faith and understanding. Would you, would you think about it again? Would you consider that maybe you've just seen it as kind of that religious argument? That maybe these are eyewitness accounts of what really happened. Give his offer another, maybe another shot. Think about his offer to live with you and to introduce you to his father so he could be your father. This is what the resurrection means and the significance of it. Would you give it another thought? Now, Jesus, we're grateful that you didn't just give us an edict to follow. You didn't just download some doctrine. You didn't just download some rules and do that and live this way. But rather, you came into this world and as difficult as it was to believe what you did, uh, there were a few, there were a handful. But they didn't just believe Jesus because you told them. They believed because they saw and they experienced. I'm so grateful that they had the foresight and the encouragement to write down what they saw. I'm so grateful that they wrote down the effect that it had on their life, the change value for them, the hope that it brought them, the new life, the future life, it seems to have radically changed their worldview and their outlook because they encountered the resurrection in all of its fullness. As we rethink and go back and wonder and ponder and ask questions through our doubt, I wonder if it's real, I wonder what the implications are. I think there too, just as you gently and carefully guided your friends, you will gently and carefully guide us to what you would have and what you would want us to know. Jesus, we're open to that, and we're thankful that you are patient as we do it. Amen.